Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for a story bigger than ourselves, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. We are passionate to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor here and around the world. This series unpacks how we, the people of Waterstone, learn to live and love like Jesus through three life rhythms we call transform, neighbor, and restore. We're glad that you've joined us. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings at 5 or Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. Last week, I uh, performed a funeral service, and after, Dan came up to me. He's a local theater director. And he said that he'd appreciated the funeral service because it was a reminder to him of what makes Christians tick. So I was captured by his comment, and I said, well, in your opinion, what do you think that is that makes Christians tick? And he said, well, it has to be, if it happened, Jesus' resurrection. Because if it's true, death is changed. I was impressed with his answer and what he caught from this service, but uh, I couldn't resist that moment of uh, pushing it a little further with him. And I said, well, it's not only true that death would be changed, right? But if Jesus is victorious over death and lives today, that would also mean that life before death should change, that he's the king, that he is like all these massive claims that he made about being the living bread, and if you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again, or that if he uh, uh, is the living water, if you never drink from him, you, you'll never thirst again. So all that's got to be true too, right? And uh, he just kind of nodded a little bit and said, well, uh, I'll think about these things. <laughs> I may have taken a little preachy tone there. Ah. <laughs> uh, what has not left me about that conversation with Dan is that question, what makes Christians tick? I think that's an appropriate question that uh, we talk about this morning in light of the last 18 months as we've been in the tunnel called a pandemic. I think humanity has been asking that question, what makes us I've been in a lot of conversations, and granted, this is anecdotal, but the word I've heard again and again and again in many conversations around the pandemic has been the word disappointment. Now, some of that disappointment is about the externals, you know, masks and shutdowns and vaccines and, you know, all the turmoil. I mean, it's a worldwide pandemic. Of course, there's going to be disappointment. But most of these conversations, when the word has come up, not so much about the externals, but about the internal. It's gone like this. You know, the shutdown especially gave me a lot of time to reflect on my life. I've reflected on my career, and it's not what I want it to be. Or I've reflected on where I am in life, the dreams I've had, and I'm not there. Or it's gone even deeper at times, not only about the externals of our lives, but it's gone this way. I do not like the person that I've become. I don't like the spouse that I am, the parent that I am, I don't like the work that I'm in, this serious churning on the inside, and there's this disappointment between this gap, right, between what I want to be and always hope to be and what I am and I'm doing now, this gap of disappointment. And I've been wrestling with the question, where does that disappointment come from? I suggest to you that's part of the human condition. This is my theory. 
that we are made in God's image. In fact, you see passages in the scriptures like Ephesians uh, 2 where God says, I've made you and saved you to be my, in the Greek word, poemas, my poems. I have made you to be co-creators of beauty and history with me. So when I look at what God wants for my life and what my life actually is, gap of disappointment. Now, that's why we gather week after week after week. We show up in person. Sometimes, as we've said in our worship, sometimes we drag ourselves here. Sometimes we can't wait to get here. But whatever way you're here this morning, we gather in Jesus' name. And that means that we come under his voice, his words, and remember the first words that Jesus said to us in his ministry were these. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Do you know what that word repent means? Change. Transform. Close the gap between what God wants us to be and what we actually are. Align. Jesus calls us together to align with the kingdom which is at hand. We begin a new preaching series today. It's called We Are Waterstone. We want to know what makes Waterstone tick. And over these next four weeks, we're going to talk about the heart of this church. Here's our mission statement. We've talked about this earlier in the year, and we've been trying to subversively get you to live in this week after week after week. Here's who we are. A people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And to demonstrate that reality with our love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. That's who we are. That's why we exist. But we live this out every day when we leave here with what we call rhythms. The beat of getting aligned every day with this kingdom of God that Jesus brought and proclaimed. And this rhythms, there's three of them, transform, neighbor, and restore. Today, we'd like to open the series by talking about being transformed, closing that gap of disappointment between who Jesus wants us to be and who we actually are. Here's what it means to live out the transform rhythm. This is on our website. Jesus promises his particular presence through the Holy Spirit, and it is the regenerative work of the Spirit in a believer's heart where the Spirit uses truth, relationships, and life experiences to conform every believer more to the image of Christ. Now, I want to dive into this rhythm today with a scripture passage that is a good visual image of what this produces. It's in 1 Thessalonians, the beginning of verse 4, follow along as I read, visualize what it means to be transformed. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and with joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Wow. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word of the Lord. Now, what we see in this passage is that, and if I could summarize it to an idea, we'll put it up on the screen, that when you become an imitator of Jesus, you become an influencer for Jesus. The goal of transformation is for us to imitate Jesus so that we become an influencer for Jesus. But you notice Christ is twice. Everything begins and ends with Jesus. The beginning of transformation, the startup, is Jesus. We saw it in the text, right? Paul said, everything started to happen when we brought to you the gospel. That's a word that means good news. It's the announcement that Jesus is king. That was the start of everything. The rest of the letter of Thessalonians, uh, by the way, that's a Greek church in ancient Greece, and um, it was so profound, this change that the gospel brought, that it, it said in there that they've heard about you in Macedonia and Achaia. That means the whole country of Greece is talking about you. Now, that's massive influence. We become imitators to become influencers, and everything starts with Jesus. Jesus, the one who we learned last week in the Great Commission, the end of Matthew, just before Jesus goes back to heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me, Jesus, the one who with the power of his words holds the universe together, the one who is the only way to have resurrection life, Jesus, the one who forgives our sins, Jesus, the one who holds the keys of death and hell, everything begins with Jesus. Why? Because he is king. He is raised from the dead. He rules. So if Jesus is king, that means that he cannot be a mere add-on in our lives that we might give an hour on a Sunday morning. He cannot be the one from whom we hide certain parts of our lives and say, you can have me, Jesus, except for this and that. If he is king, it means we submit all of us, who we are, and all parts of our lives to him. And in that submission, there is the change. His transforming power enters our lives. Now, I believe that everyone on this planet at some point in their lives wants to change wants to grow. I mean, that explains why at Barnes & Noble, the largest book session is the self-improvement section. Why the most downloaded apps are self-improvement apps. It's why we make New Year's resolutions. It's why we enter therapy. It's why we have recovery groups. It's why we watch Ted Lasso. I mean, we want to change. Why? I think people want to change for a number of different reasons. One could be that's how they were raised. And there's always this tension between how they were raised and how they're living, and they're trying to bring those together. I think other people want to change because of fear, fear of standing out, fear of being different, so they want to align. I think others want to change to improve their standing or reputation. 
Whatever the reason is, all of those reasons are outside-in kind of changes. They're outward pressures exerted upon us that make us want to change. Now, that's not all bad, but what makes a Christian tick? Here's what it is. As soon as a Christian has said to Jesus, you are king, I see it, I believe it, I submit to you, Jesus, in that moment, sends his Holy Spirit to live in our heart. You remember back in the upper room, hours before Jesus' death, his last words with his disciples before he goes to the cross, he makes this stunning statement when he says, it is good that I'm going away because when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will live in you. And we are, have the privilege of being born in this age of history where anyone, whether you're watching at home, whether you're here checking out Christianity, do you hear me? Anyone and everyone can say, yes, Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. I give my life to you. And as soon as you say that, God makes his home in you. His Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And his Holy Spirit does two amazing works in your heart. One, Paul said it this way. I send you the Spirit from Jesus. He's saying the Spirit comes from Jesus so that every moment of your life, you can say, Abba, Father. Every moment of your reality is that you are loved, held, surrounded by a loving heavenly Father. You live in an existence of love. And the Holy Spirit is always pouring that into your heart, reminding you again and again that He loves you. Even when it's hard, He's with you. We live in love because the Spirit lives in us. Which leads to the second amazing work that Jesus does in the human heart to change us from the inside out. And that's this. When that love comes in, you know it. It has to go out. It's talked about this way by Paul in Galatians 5. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Have you heard of it? It's what the Spirit does. He makes the Jesus lifestyle come into us. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Think about those. Every one of them is relational. Every one of them is not just for our benefit. It's to be used in how we encounter people. So what the love of the Father does is not only carry us in love, and we have this amazing Father, but that amazing Father is pouring that love into us so that we can have amazing love to everyone we meet. That is the starting point of transformation. Jesus is the beginning of transformation, his spirit living in us. And where does it go from there? Then we become, verses 5 and 6 of 1 Thessalonians 1, we become imitators. The gospel came to you, and then you became an imitator of us and of the Lord. And by the Lord there, Paul means Jesus. That's how he referred to Jesus. We become imitators. Why do we become imitators of Jesus? Because Jesus is the only whole, complete, 
and holy life who's ever lived perfect in the eyes of the Father. So, of course, what it means to have Jesus and his spirit living in you is that you want to become imitators of Jesus. So what we want to do now in this text in 1 Corinthians, but also we want to sneak back now and then for a look at Jesus' life, is to try to understand how did Jesus live and how do we imitate him so that we too can experience transformation. First thing, it says that our gospel came to you. Now the word gospel means announcement, the news from a king, but it's also used in the New Testament letters as the beginning of a description of what the New Testament would become. In other words, the gospel here means the stories of Jesus. And all of these stories were collected and they became the gospels and then letters were written about Jesus. They became the letters in the New Testament. This is the beginning of the New Testament. In other words, what forms us is the same thing that formed our early church in Greece here, 50 AD, but even before that, it's what formed Jesus. Yes, I'm submitting to you that Jesus was formed by Scripture. So at 12 years old, right, you remember that story? Jesus goes with his parents for one of the Jewish feasts, and uh, his parents end up leaving, and they forget to look for Jesus, and he's, they, they panic, they go back and find him. He, Jesus is talking scripture at 12 years old with the priests in the temple. Or move further into his life. How about when he, at the very beginning of his ministry, the devil comes to tempt him? Do you remember how Jesus resisted Satan? Every time Satan tempted him, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8, formed by Scripture. Or how about at the very end of Jesus' life, when he died with the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, on his lips. Jesus was formed by Scripture. What is Scripture? Scripture is the voice of God spoken to his children, which strengthens our hearts and forms our lifestyle, formed by Scripture. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that it's the inspired work of God, this Bible, that it says, I'm talking to you, you held your hand in front of my mouth, you'd feel my talking breath. That's what this Scripture is, God talking to us. And when it's read and when it's heard and residing deeply, it strengthens our hearts so that we're thoroughly equipped for every good work. The first part of being transformed is working scripture into our life. How do we do that? I just have a couple of thoughts. Well, really just one. <laughs> You've got a plan to do it. You don't just kind of gently, uh, randomly float towards being a more spiritually driven person. Like anything else in life that really causes change You've got to want it, and you've got to plan it. What I would challenge you to do, or maybe gently suggest you do, if you're not doing it, is set aside time every day, 10 minutes, when you just sit down with your phone or a Bible or maybe an audio, whatever it is. There's a hundred ways to do it. But just give 10 minutes and let Scripture come into your ears, into your heart, and you just think about it. And it might be 10 minutes. It might lead to something more. But you plan it. You do it every morning. You do it every night. You do it at lunch. Whatever it is. Tape a piece of Scripture from a cheap Bible under your steering wheel. I, I don't know. 
You can figure it out what fits your lifestyle and personality. Let me just quickly give you two of my favorites. One is an app called Read Scripture. It's from the Bible Project uh, people. And um, you can have a Bible reading plan on there where you do one chapter a day and you get through the whole Bible in three years, or you can do three chapters a day and get through the Bible in a year. But the cool thing about this app is that for every book of the Bible, there's a brief five to seven minute introduction that you can watch for each book that tells you why it's in the Bible. And it's awesome. And so you get this sense that the Bible is just not a collection of random books. It's actually the story of Jesus all the way through. So you can download that on your phone and make that your your formation, God strengthening your inner uh, heart. The other thing that I like, and this is to do with your family, with friends, you can do it corporately with other people, is a book called The Songs of Jesus by Kathy and Tim Keller. Jan and I have used this uh, for many years, and we've always struggled with what to do as a couple and how to do it. This book has been amazing for us because it's It's just a few verses of the Psalms, a brief reflection and a prayer. And sometimes it's five minutes and that's all we we can do that day. It's five minutes together. But other days it leads to this very interesting and good discussions and prayers. And so I would recommend the songs of Jesus to you. But that's the first way that being transformed is to make space in our lives for God to speak to our hearts. It's a voice and strengthen us on the inside. Be formed with scripture like the early church and like Jesus was. Second thing that we see the early church doing, back to verses five and six, we see that in the early church, Paul says, you know how we lived among you. And there's this sense of which Paul and the apostles would come plant a church and live with them for a year and a half to two years. And this small group would just see for, their, for themselves how, what it meant to live the Jesus life by Paul being a model. Where did he get that from, Paul? I think he got it from Jesus, right? Think about it with me. The closest thing Jesus did to a program is that he decided to change the world by a three-year camping trip with 12 guys. Every day he lived in a small group. And that's what changed the world. Here we are. We are products of a small group. Now, the beauty of a small group is that it teaches you to love even people you don't like. I know we would never say that in a church, but that's true. (laughs) Uh, One of my favorite incidents is in Matthew 20 in the small group with the 12. This should encourage every small group leader in the room, by the way, or watching online that Jesus even like for a moment lost control of a small group. What happened was James and John, who were brothers, Jesus, who gave nicknames to everybody, called them sons of thunder. By the way, we're going to be studying John's letter, 1 John, and we're going to see and hear from this son of thunder. But in this moment, (laughs) James and John decide that they want to be power brokers in the coming age, and they, they actually send their mother to ask Jesus if they could sit at Jesus' hands in the age to come. So it'd be Jesus, James, and John. Rock on. Well, you can imagine, if you were in that small group, who in the beep do you think you are? Asking, what's gotten into you? And they have a blowout. And then Jesus seems to let things calm. 
and turns it into a teaching moment, which is the beauty of a small group. When he says, look, guys, if you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. My kingdom does not come into this world by human power. Rather, it comes by human weakness and submission to one another in my name. That's how the world is changed. My friends, every uh, you know, year at Waterstone, at least twice a year, we have this massive small group campaign, and it's starting now. And this fall, we're going to be studying 1 John. And we want every regular attender to become part of a small group. They meet every night of the week all over the city. Here's why. We hope in this group you'll get some great knowledge about Jesus. And by the way, you will. I've read it. Kat Chacon and Paul Joslin, home run on the curriculum. We want you to be part of a small group because that group will hold you accountable and ask you hard questions. And they will. But that's not the main reason. We want you to be part of a small group because the way we do care for one another at Waterstone is by our small groups. We're much too large of a church to have one or two people keeping track of everybody. No, it needs to be in groups, and you need to be in a group so you can be cared for. And that will happen, but that's not the main reason. Do you know why we want you to be in a small group? Because Jesus wants to assign you 10 to 15 people for the next three months whom you can love even though you don't like them. No, I hope you like them. But, you know, people are people. We want you in a small group so that you are transformed. But the transformation comes not from what you get, but from what you give. And so we're asking you to get into a group so that you can learn to love. You know your group is working when it feels like a slow way to be crucified. Third thing, this church and Jesus, they practice scripture and they practice small group. And lastly, they practice, <laughs> this is the not so fun S, suffering. Look back at verses five and six in the midst of severe suffering. Here's one of the most profound statements about Jesus in the New Testament. Hebrews five, it says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Now, Jesus was the whole and complete person, no sin. He lived exactly the kind of life that, uh, you know, we should live to be righteous in God's sight and could never live. That's why he had to give that to us as well. But even Jesus had to suffer so that he could be the high priest who can come and sit down beside us and say, I'm with you in this too. I know. He suffered to grow. I've read uh, 10 years of the leadership program here at Waterstone, and at the beginning of the course, we would ask people, when in your life have you grown the most? Do you know what the number one answer was? Suffering. We grow in our suffering. Now, real quick, 
Paul the Apostle. I don't know what's going on in Thessalonians, but I do know how Paul modeled this for us, how he grew in his suffering. Thessalonians was probably the first letter written in the ancient churches, but uh, most of the ones he wrote after, guess where he wrote them from? A jail cell. I just think it's a profound thing, right, that this worldwide movement that's never been larger as it is today started in jail cells. Most of Paul's writing was from a jail cell. So you look at Philippians chapter 1, for instance, where Paul lets us in to what's going on here when he writes to a church in Philippi. Do we have Philippians uh, chapter 1? Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what's happened to him? He's in jail! Has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul is saying that he's in jail but he's seeing God work through that, even in jail. But what's really going on in Paul's world? One of the interesting things here is that one of the classic commentators, Matthew Henry, who wrote in the 1600s and whose commentaries, by the way, have never been out of print in 400 years. He wrote an amazing statement about this verse. Look at Matthew Henry writing, a strange chemistry, I love that, more on that in a minute, a strange chemistry of providence is this, to extract so great a good as the enlargement of the gospel out of so great an evil as the confinement of the gospel. Matthew Henry lived in a time when chemists, or in his day as they were called, alchemists, were trying to turn lead into gold. Why? Because lead was everywhere and it was worthless and base. Gold was the most valuable element known in that day. So what the chemists of Matthew Henry's day were trying to do is change lead to gold. And Matthew Henry's saying, look, sometimes what God is doing is using the lead in our lives. That's bringing us down and he's creating gold from it. Pretty cool metaphor. But be clear on this. What the promise there is not that God's going to turn our circumstances into gold, but he's going to turn our hearts into gold through the lead, through the hard circumstances. How does that work? Because, you know, we've been doing this long enough to know that sometimes when circumstances come in, it's not always gold right away, right? (laughs) Some Christians freeze. Some Christians flee. Some Christians Walk away when things get hard. What makes the difference? Here's what makes the difference. Paul's view of life, verse 21, chapter 1. For me to live is Christ. That was his view of life. If I have Christ, I'm living no matter what's taken away from me. No matter what I lose. If I have Christ, I'm living. Now think about this in Paul's life. Take his career, for instance. He's in jail. As far as he knows, who knows if he's going to get out? This may be the end. He's lost his vocation. But because he lost his vocation and because his definition of life was, I still have Christ even if I've lost my vocation, I'm going to live. If we lose our vocation, if we have job struggles and they come into our lives and we just melt down and become undone, I'm suggesting that the problem is not our circumstances. The problem is we have a faulty view of life. For me to live is Christ. If I have him, I am living no matter what I lose. Okay. Wow. If that's true, that's really hard. 
And what are you saying, Larry, here? Okay, I hear you about scripture. We work it in. I hear you about small groups. Yeah, get in one. But suffering? You mean I should go out and look for suffering? Heck no. You don't have to look for it. It's coming. Bound to come some trouble in your life. What I am suggesting as far as practice is that when it comes, you share it. Galatians 6 said that every church should bear burdens together. But what often happens is that people are bearing burdens, being pressed down, lead comes, but they don't share it. They don't share the burdens like Paul is sharing with his churches, like Jesus. On the worst night of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what he did? He said, Peter, James, and John, I need you. I need you to come sit next to me as I'm sweating blood. I need you. We are much more in our individualistic, you know, stoic, pull up your bootstrap culture of American to keep our suffering to ourselves and just tough it out. And that is antithetical to transformation. You will only grow through your sufferings when you share your sufferings. I uh, am a, uh, started in ministry in the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> that sounds older every time I say it. During the 1980s, one of the most nationally known preachers was a Pittsburgh preacher named Bruce Thielman, and I used to follow him by cassette tapes. <laughs> I'll never forget listening in my little youth pastor office to a sermon that Bruce Thielman, this massively known preacher, preached. He told about his struggle with weight. He was a huge man, six foot four, six foot five, but by middle age, he was as wide as he was tall. He told the, this group, he, he traveled down to the inner city of Pittsburgh to preach this message, and he told them that um, uh, uh, over the course of his life, he'd probably lost over a thousand pounds. But we all know how that goes, right? You lose 10, you gain 15 back. You lose 20, you gain 25 back. By this point in his life, well, here's the crisis moment. He was on a train going down into Pittsburgh, and he went to go to the bathroom, and he could not fit into the toilet stall. He was broken. He got home later that night, and he called up a doctor in his congregation about midnight. And by one o'clock in the morning, that doctor was at Bruce Tillman's house saying, here we go. The next day, the doctor wanted Bruce to get weighed so they know where they were starting from. And they went into the doctor's office and the scales, no scale was big enough to weigh him. So they called another member of his church who worked at the post office. And they went that night <laughs> to the post office where this gentleman led Bruce into a room where they had the big scales to weigh the mail, and that's where they weighed Bruce. And by the time the needle stopped, Bruce was weeping. And this post office worker just put his arm around Bruce and stayed with him for a long time. The next Sunday, Bruce Tillman gets up in front of his congregation, and again, I can't believe this. He says to them, I'm having a weight problem. He told them the stories of what happened the previous week. He said, the doctor tells me I need to get an exercise bike, and so I'm going to get an exercise bike and start riding it every day. By the end of the month, on that exercise bike, Bruce Tillman had fuzzy dice, rabbit's feet, 
and a rearview mirror so that he could watch his backside disappear. <laughs> I'm suggesting to you that we bear the burdens, but we bear the burdens when the burdens are shared. And so what I'm challenging you to do is those times of suffering, those struggles, even with sin, James says, confess your sins one to the other and pray that you may be healed, that we share those with our small group, with our pastors, with our people in the church, your friends. In order to bear the burdens, we have to share the burdens. When we do that, verses 7 and 8 happen, as they did in the ancient Greek church. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you all through the country. Rang out. That word means echo. It, it means to describe a sound of a trumpet or the boom of thunder. And to me, when you bring the sound of a trumpet and the boom of thunder together, what do you get? That's right. A tuba. A tuba. Jen and I were at the Christmas market a couple years ago down in Georgetown. And we looked over the schedule, and there it said, right at 1 o'clock, tuba concert. I said to Jen, I'm going to that. I'll never forget sitting in this rather small room there in a community center, about six tubas playing Christmas carols. And it seemed that when all the tubas hit this one right note, the floor vibrated. And all the little children in the room, when the floor vibrated, they just start jumping around and screaming. I'm suggesting that when Jesus comes into our life and we imitate him being formed by scripture, living in a small group, and even sharing our suffering, that there will be such a joy in this place that people will stampede us to find the source. Can that be us? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Let us stand, let us feel the floor vibrate, and let us sing with joy to our great God, how great thou art.